Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? I must confess to have been feeling a little under the weather this week. I've got some tummy bug or something that's been giving me a little bit of consternation. And it's one of these things that's always in the background and it just puts a dampener on things. But the show must go on. So I will do my utmost to buck up and pay attention for the next 60 minutes. Yes, salute to you because neither of us are traveling this week, but we were able to keep up the narrative of us powering through to get the podcast done. So I really appreciate you getting sick this week. I haven't figured out my melody for next week, but I'll I'll let you know when we get there. Uh, This is just turning into like a sad story at the start. Feel sorry for us, (laughs) boo-hoo. So, well, you could sit on the couch and maybe uh, take a day off and watch some Netflix. Yeah, well, I would, except for the fact that I think I might be like the last person left in the United States not to have a Netflix account. Interesting. You are not actually alone, in fact. Actually, only about half of households in the United States have a Netflix account, which given the sort of pervasiveness of Netflix generally, and particularly some of the memes that have arisen in the last month in particular, may be shocking, but you are not alone. I think it's true. I may be alone in just being mildly nervous about subscribing to something that's so devastatingly effective in creating content that will have you sitting in front of the television, though. And that's my main reason for not giving them my money. I'm curious about the content, but I just don't want to watch TV. And I feel like as soon as I start giving them money, that's exactly what's going to happen. Ah, moral opposition. (laughs) Very good. Very good. Uh, It is interesting. No one seems to talk about the whole, like, it's bad for people to watch a bunch of TV anymore. That's now been replaced by it's bad for people to be on the internet all the time, which I've always found very fascinating. Like, when I was a kid, that was a huge thing I would always talk about. And now no one seems to talk about it anymore. (laughs) It's interesting how things like that evolve over time. Maybe that's just because the kids are watching Netflix on the internet instead of TV. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Kill two birds with one stone, as it were. Right. Indeed. Yeah, yes. This week I wrote about Netflix and I've been wanting to do for a while in general. I mean, I always cover Netflix, particularly around their earnings in the daily update. I haven't written about it on sort of like a weekly article, a big piece really since 2015, which was one of the articles that was leading up to aggregation theory. I wrote about Netflix and the conservation of attractive profits, which frankly is probably the most important piece in figuring out in like sort of developing aggregation theory. And that was a very sort of thrilling time where I wrote a series of articles all in a row that we're kind of like piecing together all those pieces. And then the aggregation theory is the piece that just, boom, here it is all together. Well, I did write that Apple should buy Netflix. I guess that might qualify, which by the way, oppression call, if I might say so myself. <laughs> uh, we already talked about it a few weeks ago, but how much better would Apple look right now if they own Netflix? As opposed to green lighting their own shows? It is hard to argue with that. Anyhow, so I wanted to write about them, and then I particularly want to write about them after the break or over Christmas, this phenomena that sort of overtook the world of Bird Box, which I have not seen and I have no intention of seeing. I hate horror films, but that's kind of beside the point. And why it's beside the point, I think, is interesting. You know, I was on break. I came back, then the Apple thing dropped. I wrote about that, and I knew Netflix's earnings was coming up. It actually worked out well that I waited for that because not only did I have sort of the context of the earnings to write with, but also they raised prices in the meantime, which I think is also something that's very interesting to this conversation. So anyhow, that's a long preamble to say how we got to me right Netflix this week and us talking about it on the podcast. So let's dive in. Yes, and not watching Bird Box. So curious minds want to know, are you putting a bandana over your eyes right now? <laughs> no, I just dropped my glasses on the ground, which I guess is on theme, but uh, but was not on purpose. Anyhow, just kind of step back. And in the context of what we talk about, there's 
always been a bit of debate between me and my readers and commentators and stuff about is Netflix an aggregator, you know, or are they something unique unto themselves? And I think that it's a pretty important question when it comes to thinking about sort of their long-term potential and where they are. I mean, when I first wrote about Netflix, speaking of writing on trajectory, it was in the context of writing about the TV industry generally, this is back in 2013. And I said something to the effect that Netflix is just, it's another channel with a different delivery mechanism. And I think that there's a lot of people that have a similar take on it. I have, you know, certainly long since abandoned that characterization just because to think about Netflix as being another channel, in some senses, it's right. Like you can watch one channel on TV and you can switch over and watch Netflix. But given the constraints that are around channels, particularly the constraint of time, once you remove that constraint, it becomes something else entirely. I think to characterize it as a channel, no channel I know of really wants to take over as much of your viewing habits as Netflix does. The constraint on time and the constraint on choice of content, but even the notion of a channel is everybody's watching the same thing at the same time. And there are instances for things like news and sports, which Netflix is never going to get into when watching the same thing at the same time makes sense. For everything else, Netflix is creating in the same way you could almost think of the Facebook newsfeed as a customized newspaper that's filled in with news that your friends and family plus the rest of the world. Netflix is like a customized channel for you of the things that you might want to watch and they are consistently creating more and more content that you might find interesting or sourcing it. And so to characterize it as just a channel, I think is grossly unfair. Yeah. And by the way, I'm not trying to make a straw man out of anyone. Like this is something that I wrote very mistakenly a long time ago. So I am attacking myself here to be clear. The analogy that I've always used to sort of get this point across the one that you're talking about is Netflix's original streaming deal with stars, which at the time stars had a movie library. And I think I said this before, but it's really worth reiterating and getting into why talking about Netflix is interesting and meaningful, not just in the context of TV, but sort of generally in the way the internet changes things. Stars had a library of 11,000 movies, but what was the effective library size of Stars from a user perspective? It was only a few at a time because like, you could only watch one or maybe two Stars channels at any one time. So it's whatever some programming person decided to put on at that time at that day, right? That's exactly right. If you had one stars channel, then the effective library size was one and you had no choice in it. It was whatever was being shown. And to your point, that library size of one was shared by every single stars subscriber, right? I think there were like five stars channels or something, but then your library size was five, like a 500% increase, you know, not particularly uh, helpful. Whereas Netflix, on the other hand, the moment they turned on streaming, what was the effective library size from a user perspective for Netflix? all those 11,000 shows and movies that stars had available, suddenly you could watch any one of them at any time that you wanted. Absolutely. And the reason I don't feel bad about repeating this point again and again and again is it is so critical to understanding how the world is different because you have to think about it from the old world, which was predicated on the supply side and controlling distribution, all those sorts of things, all this sort of decision-making was about the supply, thinking about the supply, where the supply is and where it goes and where it flows through. And the end users sort of this huge mob out there that took what they could get. And you think about the context of like CPG, for example, you think about building consumer packaged goods, whatever they may be, getting that shelf space, getting on there, and then people are going to come along and pick it up. And yes, you try to target to those people, you know, broadly speaking, like maybe you advertise 
Axe body spray during a football game or, you know, something along those lines. But by and large, there's such a constraint around just like time and space that if you want to exert any sort of control on the overall value chain, the only place you have levers to exert that control is on the supply side. And so when you apply that sort of thinking to this idea of the stars catalog, then stars had a catalog of 11,000 and Netflix had a catalog of 11,000. And that's the way that everyone was thinking about it. But what the internet uniquely makes possible as we've talked again and again is it makes it possible to deliver something customizable just for you, just for me, just for a person. And I think your Facebook example is a great one. There are no two people in the world that have an identical Facebook feed. And if you think about that, it's pretty astounding. There are over 2 billion people on Facebook and every single one of those 2 billion people are seeing something different when they log onto facebook.com. It's a world of just blunt instruments of population level of averages, like in the traps that we've often talked about of thinking about the world as averages down to just disaggregating all of that population down to its most granular level of individuals and being able to track individuals and figure out what individuals like and letting individuals express their preference as opposed to this race into the middle of like the thing that you think the most people in a population would like, which is what the stars programming people when they decided what to put on their channels, that's probably what they'd be thinking about. Like, okay, 6 p.m. audience, we should put some kids stuff on. 8.30 movie, okay, it's going to be the more action or romance or something like that. And it's all blown apart. You can just pick whatever you want. I like romance movies more than horror movies. <laughs> that, exactly my point. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the idea of zero marginal cost. For example, something like Shatekri, right? I can send out one email and it's basically the same price for me to send it to 10 people as to send to 100 people or 1,000 people. And that's very powerful and has great economics for it, right? But this idea of zero marginal cost doesn't apply just to distributing one thing that's the same. I mean, this applies just as much to Facebook in this case in that there is zero marginal costs in generating all those unique feeds because now there's massive fixed costs. There's all kinds of upfront engineering and work and investment that needs to go into building the capability to do this. And obviously in aggregate, the compute necessary to run the algorithms that push out the feeds and send them to people, it's significant. I'm not saying there's no cost, but the marginal cost that is doing one more customized page for Facebook is zero. And so this idea of marginal cost, this is the key to understanding software and technology period. Software costs zero. Digital bits cost zero, which means on a marginal basis, it costs zero for Facebook to provide a unique page to every single person on earth. And so this aspect, that's why this zero point is so critical to understand. In some respects, I'm sort of reflecting on the times we've talked about it. I feel like I've almost done the concept short shrift by virtue of talking about things like Shatekri, for example, or talking about newspapers or whatever it might be, when the customization, the unique delivery to every single person, that's zero as well. It's, it's zeros all the way down. Yeah, it's kind of nuts. And to think about like the closest we could deliver that kind of entertainment experience before Netflix got to this point was you would have to distribute physical goods and people would have to go get a DVD or a VCR tape or something like that. And then there would only be a limited number because there's a geographic constraint around that. And they would say, okay, given this movie on average, people would probably only this many at this time. And so you go and try and get the movie you wanted and you'd go to the effort of driving to the store to get the movie and the movie wasn't there because it was all out and that would be frustrating and you'd need to find something else. And just the extent 
to which it's reimagined. And like, you want to watch a show? Why shouldn't you be able to watch a show? We've digitized all the shows and we're creating all these new digitized shows and we'll just deliver you the show you want. It's like the promise of the internet, right? Yeah, and you're getting into that other piece that I talk about is not just the zero marginal costs, but also the sort of zero transactional costs and you can scale infinitely for all intents and purposes. And I think your point about DVDs is a great example because there is an aspect where the DVD rental business, like the blockbuster business, was a zero marginal cost business, right? They buy DVDs and every rental is by and large pure margin. I mean, it's not quite pure margin because, you know, they have to account for loss and they have to account for wear and tear and they have to count, you know, the salespeople that are doing the checkouts and stuff like that. But big picture, they buy the DVD once and then they rent the DVD as many times as they can, basically making pure profit every single time they rent it. Right. And so, yes, so there you go, zero marginal cost. But the problem is, to your point, it wasn't scalable. I mean, it was scalable in the fact they could put stores all over the country and buy in mass and get discounts along those sorts of lines, but they were fundamentally limited by how many DVDs they could cram into a single store. They were fundamentally limited by the fact that physical goods degrade. They were fundamentally limited by the fact people had to get out and drive to their car and like anytime you touch and interact with the physical world, there's a massive dampening that goes on the zero marginal cost sort of effects. And that's the other piece with Netflix. And it's critical to understanding why the company is unique. So number one, the fact that their library size is how many tiles are in there. Those are immediately available to any one user. Like that library size was 11,000 a day one. However many shows and movies are on Netflix today, every single one of them is immediately available to every single person. But then two, they can also access every single person person. They can make all those available without any sort of constraints because it's all digital. It's all coming over the net. So if you have broadband, you have access to Netflix. Their limit is broadband penetration. It's not having to go out and build stores. And once you have access, you have access to everything. Like It can scale in all directions. It can scale in the amount of content. It can scale in the amount of users effectively, infinitely. This has so many flow-on effects, right? I remember the internet had kind of emerged back in the late 90s and this movie, The Matrix, had come out that I really wanted to see and I was living in London and I'd heard about it, but it wasn't released. It hadn't been made available in the UK yet and you're hearing all this stuff from the US and it's not in the UK and it's like the distribution of information, it got out in front of the way that entertainment had been distributed. It was still back in this old world of like, oh, we need to launch in all these different markets. We need to hit the newspapers and the billboards and all these other things, as opposed to thinking about something as a global phenomenon. And then you start to think about the supply side as well. If you're giving all these people these individual shows, you're generating all this data at an individual level, and you can tell what type of movies people like to watch. Like you could start to see, oh, uh, people who like horror movies like Sandra Bullock. Why don't we get this horror movie and we put Sandra Bullock in it. And we can see how many like get to the end of, oh, they want more horror. And like, there's nothing there. They've run out of good ones. There's demand for it there. And compare that to like creating shows or creating movies where you're just relying on the intuition of some studio executive because they're not informed by anywhere near that level of granular data. Was that actually the case that they made the movie because people like Sandra Bullock and horror movies? I am not going to say that that is the case for this show, but I have heard Netflix executives talk about like the amount of data that gets generated. And it's not the case that the data has replaced all the insight. And in fact, there were Netflix folks that this story swung too far the other way around. And it's like, no, there's still a degree of creative aspects that you can never completely get in an algorithm, but they certainly use that data in order to inform decisions and to better inform decisions. They know what 
what types of shows that people are craving because they get to the end of playlists on or they watch and they can see where they abandon and they can see that preference at the level of individual people. So I think the thing then to appreciate is you take all these sort of pieces that are uniquely enabled by digital, the total personalization, the zero marginal costs, the sort of infinite ability to scale, all the data that comes in. And what you do and what Netflix has done is you build an entire value chain that starts with all these sorts of things as first principles. And what that creates is a flywheel that in my estimation is an aggregation type flywheel where they have huge number of end users. That huge number of end users gives them power in the marketplace because they're walking in with a checkbook and that checkbook is not just based on having 130 million users or 120 million users or however many it is. It's also based on all the users they anticipate adding going forward and the fact that they're reaching users all over the world and their mindset about what the value a show imparts to them is completely different than the mindset of a traditional network. And that gives them more buying power in the market. And to your point, perhaps a smarter buying power because they're paying for And then they get more content and that content is thus more attractive to their current users, keeping them happy, retaining them, dramatically rolling their sort of their retention costs. And then also makes the service overall more attractive to new users, which gives them more users, which gives them more power in the marketplace. And I guess, yes, when you say about an aggregator in the case of Facebook or Google, it's very clean because everything's free and everyone's sort of moving. You know, there's no necessarily money changing hands because the average are off to the side. But I don't think the dynamics are necessarily any different here in the case of Netflix and this. And the key thing is because everything is digital, this flywheel can sort of scale and there's no reason for that flywheel to really run out until you like literally run out of people. And Netflix is not to the point we kind of open with like, yes, growth is slow significantly in the US. If you haven't signed up for Netflix yet in the US, there's a good chance you never will. But the fact remains, they still only have 50% penetration. I mean, that's crazy, but there's a lot of people out there that still could be a part of Netflix. And certainly internationally, that number is significantly higher. And I think these dynamics are very real. And they're very real, not just relative to other internet giants that have similar sort of flywheels, but when you particularly consider it in the state of Netflix's competition, every single one of Netflix's competitors have some sort of touch to an old world model, a world model that was assumed geographic constraints and that assumed time constraints. And I kind of mentioned in passing that the moment you touch anything physical, it gums up the entire works, right? That flywheel and that return that you get on this sort of effect really starts to fall apart. And every single one of Netflix's competitors has that sort of limitation. And that doesn't mean that Netflix is going to take everything and be the only thing that anyone ever watches. Watches. I mean, we can talk about that in a little bit, but I do think it means that the sort of competitive threat to Netflix is probably even less than most people sort of appreciate simply because they have the purest sort of business model that is completely built on these assumptions. You know, the interesting thing for me, as you said, that is to recognize just how gargantuan a feat it is what they've managed to pull off. Because right now you and I are talking about it like these guys can do no wrong. And honestly, it is super impressive. But let's not forget that the place where they started out 
was with those physical things. They were mailing discs to people. And then the streaming thing, they managed to find some loophole with stars where they were able to stream 11,000 movies. There are a lot of companies that would have that core insight and that's where they would stop. They wouldn't grow. They wouldn't start to think about where do we go next? Where do we go next? And when that deal expired because the existing players saw it as a threat, that would have been the death of the company. But they have not rested on their laurels at any point and just to recognize that they went from mailing dvds to the point that we're describing now and they're making the existing players that still have the touch in the physical world look like they're slow it's an impressive feat yeah and i think it's useful to sort of think through and walk through this because you know there's all these different characteristics of an aggregator what is an aggregator and it's everything it's not just one or two things it is for example you need to have a foothold with the sort of the end user because it's that foothold and that ownership of demand that starts bringing suppliers onto your platform right you just described how it is that netflix got the initial sort of user base and it was with something that was physical it was not a digital good like you don't always walk into the market as an aggregator day one. You had the pieces. They started out, they had the physical piece that they leveraged into building a user base. Then they had that user base and they could leverage that into getting their first piece of sort of supply to your point. So Netflix was still sitting on its old value chain. And there's like two ways to think about the traditional TV value chain. Like if you back up at a very, very sky high level, there are people who create shows. There's people who distribute shows and there's people who consume shows, right? So there's sort of three pieces, right? But the way it actually worked out is, you know, there are people that viewed shows, people who created shows, but that part in the middle, the distribution of shows actually was broken into two pieces. And it was broken into two pieces for sort of obvious physical reasons, which is one part of distributing a show is actually like sourcing the show and paying for it and getting it off the ground and then selling it. The other part of distributing a show is the physical part, which is you actually have to put cables in the ground or satellites up in the sky. It's no surprise those were sort of two different companies. And so the way it actually played out was even though very big picture, theoretically, there's like three parts here, creation, distribution, and consumption. The reality is that middle part was in two pieces. And so when Netflix came in, they were fitting into that. In this case, there were the people that created the content. There was Stars, which was handling the sort of production side of distribution and sourcing side of distribution and selling the content. Then there was Netflix, which was consuming it and distributing it to end users. And then there were the end users themselves. And if you think about it, when Netflix did the stars deal, they really were just another cable channel. Now they were a cable channel with unique capabilities enabled by the internet in that you could choose any show to watch. You had access to the whole library. But as far as the value chain goes, the value chain was the same value chain that we'd had in content consumption for many, many years. And it was a value chain that was constrained and shaped by the physical limitations of actually distributing content. Now, this is where Netflix creating their original shows was so critical. It's like intuitively important that they have their own shows. But if you think about it in the context of the value chain, what that did was it unified those two different pieces of distribution. It unified the actual getting the show in front of customers with the actual like paying for the show and sourcing it. That was the point of integration. Netflix took those two pieces that for many years were sort of like just a push and pull between like Comcast and Disney, you know, how much of the share of the, of the cable bundle are we each going to get in these cut negotiations? But they were really sort of two peas in a pod, like they were in it together. It was just kind of deciding out, you know, who had the bigger pea. Um, but in that case, Netflix just did the whole thing and they could uniquely do that because of the internet because distribution was free because they could leverage all those pipes that Comcast nicely put in the ground for them to accomplish all these sorts of things. 
And so they integrated these two pieces and it's that integration that really unlocked the sort of virtuous cycle. And it's that integration that makes their business perfectly attuned to the market. And it's that integration that provides their competitive moat. Mm. There are a couple of things in what you said that are interesting, like the nature of the distribution. I knew on some level that they were two separate things, but the way you described it then that like Comcast and Disney, two peas in a pot. I love that. Part of what enabled this was this notion that those pipes are initially being fit for purpose and the only way to reach content into consumers' homes that started to fade away as the internet repurposed pipes from being fit for purpose. Purpose, whether it's carrying TV or movie signals or television signals or satellite signals to just carrying bits. And then it was no longer fit for purpose. And Netflix could just repurpose these pipes that once no one else could get access to consumers along. If you wanted to send a TV show into someone's house, like there were only a very limited number of ways to do it. And Netflix took advantage of this new pipe that previously they wouldn't have been able to get access to as the internet just allowed it to carry ones and zeros. The other thing that's so interesting is, like you said, the integration back of these two relatively separate businesses on Netflix's side of the creation and then the distribution and the collection of the dollars. And it's interesting. My understanding is Netflix has two very different organizations doing this. Like they have a Los Angeles, Hollywood type area, and then they have a Silicon Valley type area dealing with the respective parts. Like Hollywood does creative, Silicon Valley does the tech but as is always the case, like when you integrate or you could also think about it when you do purchase, like when a merger and acquisition happens, you want to think about the ways in which the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. You got a sense from Disney's realization that if they had their own exclusive content, that they could then capture some greater share of carriage fees when it came to the cable channel negotiations. And Netflix kind of had this realization. And like you said, it's somewhat intuitive. If we want to really attract people into watching our quote unquote channel, we got to have content that they really just can't get anywhere else. Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting points there that you made that I want to sort of expound upon. This bit about, you know, there's still the team in Los Angeles, there's still the team in Los Gatos, and that they do sort of totally different things is a great one. But you think about that's the case for any integration, right? Apple's software designers are not designing hardware, right? Apple's ops people in China they have nothing to do with the user interface on an iPhone, right? It almost gets us like, what's the purpose of a corporation? What is the sort of a theory of a company? And there's an aspect where, yes, you have a very focused sort of organization that does one thing and everyone in the company is pulling towards that singular goal. But I think the truly influential companies, the ones that reshape value chains, it comes from integration. It comes from taking two disparate pieces, putting it under one roof and changing the strategic calculus for those different pieces such that they're pulling in a common direction in a way that is very sort of hard to compete with. And also layering on, and what makes that possible is the paradigm change, right? Yes, Netflix has that team in those that is mostly focused on the sort of technology, but the number of people that Netflix has employed working on distributing content is relative to like a Verizon or a Comcast, if infinitesimal, right? Like they have like people doing support calls and laying stuff in the ground and like their workforce is to be massive, massively larger. And so this is sort of the key thing. This is the technological breakthrough. It took that piece, made it dramatically cheaper, made people doing it dramatically more efficient, and that made it logistically 
possible to marry that to the sort of the production side in a way that wouldn't have been logistically possible previously. And yes, Comcast bought sort of Embassy Universal, but why is there very little sort of return to that? Where do you find synergy between such two massively, totally different, totally unfocused sort of corporations to achieve that integration, to achieve those two parts under one roof? You need to have some sort of like technological advantage that makes that even viable and makes it possible to be sort of strategically nimble. Mm, it's like that old Jim Boxdale quote about like there's only bundling and unbundling and seeing how it used to be that pipe carried the content and that was the only way to get the content in. And all the Comcast, a lot of their investment was predicated on not just laying the cable, but being able to sell the cable channels and then seeing that change. And then Netflix integrating in a very different place that now is appropriate, given the fact that the pipes can carry anything. So that's another really interesting point. And I think it ties into the one you mentioned with the cable, right? The cable can be anything. What is a sort of perfect point of integration of value chain look like? I would say just theoretically, you know, big picture, if you want to look great, you would have a very well-defined two pieces that work together, that augment each other very well. You would own that and you would own that in a way that allows maximum scale on the edges. Because if you integrate one part of the value chain, what happens to the other parts of the value chain? It modularizes, right? Exactly, right? And you want maximum modularity on those parts. So Apple, for example, they have that tight integration with hardware and software and they could charge a profit for it, but they get a huge amount of modularity when it comes to what the phone can do through the app store, right? And that's augmented by the browser and being able to access anything. And on the other side, Apple has access to all the suppliers in the world who are competing for their business. And so they have huge amount of modularity on that side. That's why the business model is so great. They have this tight piece of integration in one part of the value chain and sort of maximum modularity on the complementary parts of the value chain. I would argue that Netflix has that same sort of thing. So on the one side is the cable pipe, which can be anything. And we'd already talked about the implication of that from Netflix's perspective is they can reach everyone. They're not limited by geography. They're not limited by time. They can reach anyone at any time all over the world, making their market super huge. And they can bring that to bear on the deals they do. But it applies on the backside as well. Like Netflix isn't constrained in any way by the sort of shows that they buy. Yes, for like some second run shows, they do deals with the old school channels, like the deal to get friends, you know, for another year. And that's fine. Their model can handle that. They can also buy shows outright, like where they own everything. They fund the whole thing. They have all the content like Stranger Things. And they'll make maximum profit there because they own every single piece of it. And so they can make deals with producers, like the Shonda Rhimes deal. And they don't even know what shows they're going to get out of it yet. But that's one that makes sense. They could plug into this model. They can do deals like they did a deal with the BBC where the show that they created is shown on the BBC in the UK, but the rest of the world is shown on Netflix. And there's this degree of flexibility and ability to ingest content of all types. They can take grade A Hollywood movies all the way down to like they have shows like BuzzFeed or Vox on the channel. And this scalability and modularity is very much not just on the consumption side for Netflix, but it's on the production side as well. And it's very unique if you think about it relative to their competitors. I mean, Disney is going to create a service. And that Disney service is, I think, going to be successful because Disney has great content. And they have great content because in that old value chain, Disney achieved integration between we own the channels and we create super compelling content that end users want so we can negotiate great deals with the cable providers, right? And so they have integration at a different point in the value chain than Netflix, but it's a more constraining piece of integration because it's hard to see Disney scaling their content ingestion, for example, to to the level that Netflix does. And they're constrained in a way with their model that 
will make their model, I think, successful, but it's not going to be as large or scalable as the Netflix model. I mean, it's interesting you say that because I think about if we view the channels as a function of the pipes and the pipes going from a fixed purpose, which was to view video and there were only a certain number of channels you could display at one time to general purpose, which is you can just pump anything down. It would almost seem like that your point of view on Disney's integration around creation of content and channels is actually less helpful. Yes, in the sense it still makes money today because there are still people on the cable bundle today that are still getting the channels. The thing that you discussed that's most valuable for them as they move into this brave new world of pipes that carry anything. So first of all, I'm not sure that that integration is helpful between content and channels in this new world because channels don't really exist in this new world. But even still, they're being held back by the success and their dependence of the funds or the revenue that comes from them still participating in this previous world, uh, fully allowing them to drop that paradigm and move into the next one. Well, yeah, that's the thing. Like Disney actually isn't a Netflix competitor at all. People are going to categorize in that because they're both streaming. But the reality is that Disney really is a digital channel, like what we mistakenly categorize Netflix as. And what Disney is building is a direct-to-consumer way that they can monetize their content sort of more efficiently. They're like not sharing it with the Comcast of the world. But what Disney is not building, they're not building an aggregator. They are leveraging supply to get demand. They are not leveraging demand to sort of build this flywheel of ever more supply. It's a very different model. Like Disney is the sort of New York Times of media, where the aggregator is Google and and Facebook, where they have all the attention and people get content coming on their platform and supply. And by the way, a lot of that content is crap, just like a lot of shows on Netflix are crap, right? But the scale advantage and just the amount of crap (laughs) and still lots of good stuff is just a huge thing. And in the case of the New York Times, what do they have to do? They have to go around that. They have to build like a brand, something that will subscribe to and pay for. The Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Stratechery, you know, the same sort of thing. And they're building that direct-to-consumer connection as a way to go around the aggregator and to get a greater share of return for what they create. But that does not make them an aggregator. The New York Times is not an aggregator. Just because they have a connection with the users, like that's only one small piece of what makes an aggregator. You need this flywheel effect. And it's the same thing here. Disney is the New York Times. They're the Wall Street Journal. Netflix is Facebook and Google. It's so interesting. And I mean, when you describe the New York Times versus Facebook and Google, it makes sense. I guess my question becomes, in the same way that once you have a direct-to-consumer relationship, which Disney's planning on building, and you have content that's top-notch that causes people to want to subscribe, you're in a similar position to Netflix. What prevents Disney from making the decision to try to become an aggregator just like Netflix is? It's super interesting. I mean, I think it's one of those things like theoretically nothing. And you could all say theoretically, the New York Times could put content from anyone on their front page and links to it, but they don't because that's just not the sort of company they are. I mean, you can see it very clearly in the context of Disney where they have like brand safety stuff and like the Disney service is probably not going to have like adult sort of things. They want to put that on Hulu. Why? Because the power of sort of culture and approaching problems where you've always approached them is not only very powerful, it's necessary. What goes into being a great content creator? What goes into the creation of IP? What goes into building an entire machine around leveraging that IP like Disney has? You start with sort of a different perspective and a different set of priorities and approaches that just leads you in a different direction. And that's fine. Like I've always been pretty optimistic about Disney generally for many years. Like I was one of the few 
people when their stock really slid because that ESPN numbers are sliding. A few years ago, say, I think they're going to be okay. And my reason for them being okay is because good content still matters. Good content is still meaningful. You can still build real businesses if you have differentiation there. And Disney's going to be far more valuable because video is far more valuable than the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, or whatever it might be. But I think it's just not built into the business to have this scalability function on both sides. And even though they will have maybe the pieces to do it, I think they're going to go in a different direction. And I think that's fine. You don't need to be an aggregator. Disney wants to create great content. And I think they're building a good model to create great content. The direct to consumer market is a great way to incentivize the creation of compelling content because literally your income depends on it. And that's fine. It's a fine thing to do. And do you really want to fight Netflix? on their turf anyway, that's a pretty tall order to say the least. No, I agree. I couldn't conceptually get the reason why they couldn't take the same leap. And when you explained like conceivably, they absolutely could. But the basis of the company is this brand and the brand probably constrains them in terms of trying to be all things to all people in a way that Netflix is much less constrained and getting a sense of like the supply side first and focusing on the quality of supply as opposed to the demand side first, which also makes more sense now you've explained it. And also Disney have just integrated in different places. Like the way we just described it, Disney and HBO are actually quite akin. But then you think about all the other businesses that Disney have built, like all the way down to the stores, all the way down to the theme parks and the integration that they get there, that will also in turn limit their ability to like let the brand slip too far because then you risk the other businesses that they've already built. Yeah, and all this is a little bit fuzzy, like what their focus is as a company, what their differentiation is, but it's very real. Like this stuff actually matters, right? Could Apple theoretically be a great services company? Well, yes, but you know, it's a lot more complicated than that. Could you know Amazon make great hardware? Well, in the grand realm of possibilities, anything is possible. So yes, but it's all crap. Why? Because that's not what the company is organized around and focused on and, and culture and all those sorts of things. And particularly in this case of being an aggregator, it requires such a lack of friction in every part of that. That virtuous cycle depends on the complete lack of friction. And for a company like Disney, not only would they have to sort of completely rejigger their approach and thinking to even pursue this opportunity, they are saddled with a huge amount of friction because they still have a massive business with traditional cable, with movie theaters, all those sorts of things. And if you think about that, it would be kind of foolhardy to chase Netflix down this road, you know, like you pursue a strategy that rests on what makes you unique and what makes Disney unique is IP. It's not that the internet reduces friction, right? The internet reducing friction is a general fact in the air in the world. And Netflix built their entire company around that. So if I were competing with Netflix, that's actually the last place I would want to go because they're just far better suited to pursue it anyway by virtue of the fact they grew up on the internet. Yeah. One thing that's true in the world, just like the internet reduces friction, is good content still does well and they are still good at creating good content. So yeah, that makes sense. Right. And you know what? There can be multiple winners. Like I know that I've written that aggregators tend to be like winner take all or winner take most. And, you know, the constraint on that is always sort of supply. And now with the rise of paywalls, even in the world of Google and Facebook, they don't have all the content, right? They don't have strategic content. And now strategic content is a drop in the ocean, but there's still room. If you think about your business in a different perspective, all those pieces that make aggregators possible can be leveraged to your own good, right? Social media is great marketing for strategic. The fact that I accept payments for the web is 
super great. The lack of friction is very, very useful. I'm just leveraging it in a different way, in a way that <laughs> like I'm not going to be Facebook rich by any means. I'm just going to make a nice living, but that's okay. And in the context of a company like Disney, making a nice living is still like hundreds of millions of dollars or billions or however much it's going to be. I just pulled the number of thin air. I've got to have to think through what it actually is, but that's fine. They don't have to be saddled with the old world forever. And that's fine. Thinking about this transition from one world to the next, actually come back to your article. And we started off talking about Bird Box. You started off writing about Bird Box. The extent to which the movie was successful and Netflix tweeted about the number of people that had seen it. And if you assume two people in every household for the number of times it got watched, you'd basically roughly come out at a top 10 blockbuster movie of all time. And it was kind of crazy to me thinking about the fact that that Bird Box will never hit that top 10. And that's the thing that all movies have been judged on in terms of it being a blockbuster. Was it, did it make it into the top 10? What was the opening? How many people paid for it? And I was thinking about it and you know, it's crazy. I think that if I had a choice between that one-off type blockbuster movie with a massive revenue number or having a movie in the context of Netflix where it's just absorbed by all the subscribers who love it so much and they watch it, I think I would take the Netflix option. And it's crazy. This might be the leading indicator, the canary, if you will, that the paradigm really has shift because the old metric for success for movies no longer applies to this new show that's come out and done so well. It's super interesting you say that because people will be super critical. They'll be like, oh, you can't use that number. You can't compare it to box office views because people actually decided to go out and do it, blah, 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 blah. It's like, that's right. You can't use that metric. But with the takeaway is that's a positive for Netflix, right? Making a metric not matter, making it irrelevant, making it a trivial pursuit question, like that's the ultimate sign that you've transformed and changed the value chain. It doesn't matter. Yeah, if two people win it and they went out to see it, yes, it'd be $1.6 billion or whatever it is. And like, oh, that didn't happen. That's right. It didn't happen. It doesn't matter that it didn't happen because they're playing a different game. Yeah. And that different game is uniquely enabled and made possible by the internet in a world of like physical distribution where that was the only way to do it. Why play that game? I mean, you mentioned the metrics thing, right? The metrics have changed. What's that saying? You know, metrics are a trailing indicator. In this case, the very existence of the metrics are a trailing indicator, if that makes sense. No, it totally does. It is fair. The other thing to remember is this stuff does cost a lot of money. They're not getting it all free like Facebook and Google were. So, you know, I understand Netflix skepticism. I understand Netflix skepticism, particularly in all the debt that they're taking on. And they're absolutely betting on future growth and what that growth doesn't materialize. Or the marginal customer like you is increasingly more difficult to reach. And yes, their customer acquisition costs are lower because of all the content. It's lower, relatively speaking, right? The more stuff on Netflix, the more you're tempted to join. And so the cost, if they actually wanted to market to you and give you a discount or whatever it might be to come on, it's lower than it would be otherwise. But compared in absolute terms, getting you versus getting the person I sent up five years ago, you're much more expensive. You're much harder to get, right? And so by definition, the larger you get, there's going to be some aspect of it's more challenging to bring people on. So all these things, it's fair to be skeptical. And it's fair to question the stock price. Like it's insanely high. Like it's assuming this huge amount of subscribers. So I, I get all that. But it's in that context that I write this being pretty optimistic. And it's in the context of not necessarily looking in the future. And if I am right that they have this sort of flywheel and it is this sort of sustainable advantage and the fact that their business is perfectly aligned to the value chain of the future and not constrained by the value chain of the past and the fact they can expand, there's no reason the library can't continue to grow infinitely. Like there's no reason that gives them 
ever more pricing power such that their average revenue goes up. I think a trap people fall into is because Netflix started at $10 or $8 or whatever it was. Netflix is the cheap option. But I think a better way to think about it is people spend a few hundred dollars every month on entertainment. Like I think it's hard to envision a world where that suddenly plummets to the four. Like we used to spend $200 and now we spend $50. I think what's going to happen is that $200 is going to be redistributed in different ways. And I see no reason why Netflix, like whether average revenue per user, couldn't be significantly higher down the road than it is now. I mean, we've had 100 million people spending lots and lots of money on the KO bundle for many, many years. And that money may shift where it goes, but it doesn't mean that money's going away. And there's no like physical constraint on Netflix on how much of it they can capture. Like if anything, you can make an argument that they should be borrowing even more and getting even more content because the upside on them is I think it's much further away than I think folks appreciate. And again, people look at the subscriber numbers, they'll get the horizontal growth prospects, but I think people underestimate sort of the vertical growth prospects, if that makes sense. Like the pricing that Netflix could command 10 years down the road when they have almost all content. This reminds me, it's not a perfect analogy, but this reminds me of the mistake people make when they're valuing the Ubers or the Lyfts, thinking about comparing it to taxi companies as opposed to comparing it to transportation as a sector. And you can almost see a case if you squint far off in the future that what was the cable bundle starts to morph into Netflix in the future, just the way that they're growing. It doesn't look like they're going to take sports for a bunch of good reasons. And they might not get into news because they just don't do content that quickly goes stale. But you could see them morphing into taking over so much of that bundle that already exists today and which people pay, like you said, a lot of money for. Right. And to go full circle, that's the mistaken thing with them as a channel. Because you think about in the context, well, how much did Disney have? How much did Viacom have? Or whatever that might be. By definition, they're integrating both parts. They want to take the whole P. They want to take the whole pod, I should say. They don't want one of the P's. They want to take the entire pod, which means all the revenue that Comcast and Charter and Time Warner and all the distribution, physical distribution companies generated, plus all the revenue that Disney and Viacom and Turner and all the sort of content companies generated. That's the addressable market. I love the Uber example. The addressable market is transportation. It's not not taxis. In this case, channels are the taxis and TV entertainment or movie entertainment or video entertainment all up is the transportation market. And yeah, it is interesting to think about. I think there's an aspect of someone asked me, do I worry that I have like confirmation bias about aggregation theory applying to Netflix? And they're one of the biggest skeptics about Netflix being an aggregator. And this is a fair question. Like to the extent that aggregation theory applies in more and more industries, the more sort of meaningful and powerful I think it is as sort of a theory. And it was a useful question. You may we want to step back and think about it, but I think they are like, and maybe I will end up being proven wrong, but I see these same dynamics of demand giving leverage over supply. And just because that manifests itself via money, I don't think that makes the dynamics any different than if it manifests via attention in the case of like Facebook or something else. But the great thing about this is time will tell. We'll be able to look back in five to 10 years and see just where they are and how dominant they are. And, and I'd be happy to admit if I was wrong. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll be interesting to wonder how much that bundle's going to cost in five or 10 years time. Yeah. I mean, the number one mistake that I see in valuations of Netflix is I think they dramatically underestimate what their average revenue per user is going to be in the long run. I think to think that they're going to stay between like $10, $15 is to misunderstand the scalable nature of their model. I think especially once people get hooked and I don't think they're going to be giving it up very easily. 
Yeah, exactly. And I would bet this price increase, like I'm sure they have price increase. I'm not sure, but my guess is they have price increases scheduled out well into the future. Like it just could be a regular March and their bet is they're going to have so much compelling content to be such a part of the fabric of people's lives and have the ability to generate attention and be something that people feel they need to be a part of, like happen with Bird Box. And that matters for the supply side too, right? The supply side is mostly motivated by money, but it's also motivated by getting reached, by being a big star. You know, I mean, like Sandra Bullock's face, well, at least her forehead and her mouth were (laughs) plastered all over Twitter for like two weeks straight, right? And I think it's a real effect. But like I said, we will see, no pun intended. (laughs) Indeed. Very good. This was fun. I will talk to you next week. Sounds like a plan. Have a good one, mate. Uh, Yep, bye-bye.